Welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist comedy podcast for everyone. Uh, yeah. And I'm Mohanad Al Sheikhi. Yeah, I don't know why I jumped into something else. Well, last time I uh we we did this, we there was no threads. It did not even exist as a social media app. Yeah, it's uh I feel like we keep they keep trying to give us different alternatives to Twitter. Um Blue Sky. I have an account on there, but it seems like I, I mean, it seems like people are kind of using threads, but it still, seems like Twitter is still, you know, the main one that people are using. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't really used Twitter that much anymore. And I feel like now every time you comment, like all you see is like replies, like from like verified people who are just fucking insane. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's, it's so bad. And then threads is, I feel like threads is kind of like swayed into a, the because it's attached to Instagram, so mostly you see stuff from bigger accounts on Instagram, and those are not the brightest people. You know, every 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 viral thread that I see is like, "What you guys had for breakfast today?" And it's like, "Who are you, and why are you here on my page?" I don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, I, it does feel like Twitter is kind of slowly dying, but I I hope that um, it's. You know, I hope it dies. I don't know if I should say that because it has been such a useful tool for, you know, leftists in particular, because it's not like the kinds of news that we, you know, value is is going to be um, amplified in most uh, legacy media publications. Maybe it'll be printed, yeah. but it's not going to be. Yeah. You know. uh, but I don't know. I feel like every everyday Twitter just like try, like the algorithm just like crushes anything that is not just you know from crypto bros and like tech people and like the worst the worst people, people, yes. people the, yeah exactly so i don't know i don't know i mean threads i like it as a social media app for now uh it needs you know it still needs work but for now i'm just like ah fuck it whatever i'll just roll with it i mean i think for myself like i don't know the idea of like you know, Mark Zuckerberg being like more ethical than Elon Musk feels like kind of a joke. It's not necessarily. Uh... Oh, absolutely not. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, he's not. I, I, at this point, it's just like, what what billionaire do you hate more? It's so bad. Um. So before we get into the the billionaires that we're going to uh, drag this week, um. You know, we have been we've been off and away on our tours and we're very happy to be recording again. Thanks for uh, sticking in there with us. We hope to be putting out episodes regularly again now that things have calmed down a little bit. But you know what? Uh, we're we're comedians. And this is not this podcast is uh, we we love it. And it's a it's a labor of love. This isn't something that this is something that we do for free, although we do have a few Patreon supporters and we are extremely grateful for you um it allows us to pay our wonderful producer genevieve who uh edits our episodes um and uh yeah we just really appreciate you so thank you so much absolutely uh, um 
Okay. So, you know, we are in the middle of something that, uh, some people are calling the hot labor summer. And uh, today yeah, we're going to talk about yeah. uh, DoorDash, UPS, and um, the the R industry, the WGA yeah. and SAG. Uh, after that, we mm-hmm. have an interview that I'm really excited about with uh, Emil Torres, who is a philosophy professor in Germany. And um, mm. he is a former long-termist. If you remember, we've talked about long-termism on the show, this like philosophy yeah. that all the fucking Silicon Valley billionaire bros are really into. And we really went into it. Like some of the shit yeah. that I believe is insane. They made like their own version of like tech utopia Scientology. And it's really strange. So we talked about like, you know, what his process of leaving long-termism was like, you know, how all these mm. people got into it, how pervasive it is. It's, it's just, it's really, really, really weird culty shit. And um, I'm excited about this interview. Cause I think that uh, you listeners, you all, y'all, um, use um will enjoy this <laughs> i was I, we uh, we really do need a, a plural that's not y'all i know i know i feel like it's this is the most progressive version now but i'm just like i just can't say it and it doesn't feel natural to me you know like i have to like my brain has to take a pause and then i'm like y'all yeah i know it's very texas well no it literally is texas or you know i know it is so- it is it is yeah uh but yeah yeah we wanted to talk about the about the strike i mean the writer's strike and the actor actor strike just started like maybe a few days ago but the writers have been on strike since like april yeah it's been over eight uh, days at this point um there's yeah. a piece that i enjoyed uh from josh gondelman who is a friend of the show um and he wrote this piece in the nation that was really good mm-hmm. but he um I, you know his piece was commenting on this uh, statement last week in deadline um, from an anonymous source um, that the studios uh, intended to not bargain through the summer and that they were hoping that by holding out um, that they would be able to basically crush um, the crush the union, you know, or at least crush the demand. And what they said specifically um, yeah. in the article was the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. A studio executive told Deadline, acknowledging the cold as ice approach, several other sources reiterated the statement. One insider called it a cruel but necessary evil. Um, and, you know, now the uh, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, um, which is representing the studio, of course, they're denying that they you know said this and they're saying it doesn't represent them and that they want to reach a deal but you know like this kind of thing uh my guess is it was leaked on purpose my guess is that yes um this is like you know there there's kind of a, a good cop bad cop you know coming yeah. out here that's like one of the problems with anonymous sources is because it's like yeah you know, what uh, you, can't, you can't really figure out what the incentives are for the source, but my guess is that this was said on purpose uh, to absolutely yeah. and scare the writers. It's also su- it's also such an interesting uh, quote because like the main issue the, the and the reason most of these writers striking are because they spend so much time not working and not making any money, and I'm like, oh, you're just threatening that you will do that to them. I'm like, no, they. That's the issue. Like most of them don't, are not even like getting jobs because of the tiny rooms and all of that stuff. So it's a threat, but at the same time, it's the reality for so many writers that 
they go so many months without work anyway. Yeah, I think that people really overestimate like, you know, just how many working class writers there are, you know, I mean, look, there's definitely a lot of rich people in this industry, you know, there's a lot of nepotism for sure. Uh, That's all real. But there's also just like a lot of people who, you know, they get writing jobs here and there. They're not working for that many weeks a year. And then maybe their salary is good for the time that they're working. But if they're working for 10 weeks and then they exactly. don't work again in their industry for the entire year, then that's that's not a good salary. I think that's what, you know what? That's something that I feel like a lot of people don't understand. It's like, they're like, oh my God, you, you worked for uh, 10 weeks and you made 28K. And I'm like, yeah, that's a lot of money. But you have to remember that it's 28K a year, yeah. not every uh, 10 weeks. People think it just keeps coming. I'm like, no, it's it does not. Yeah, for it's, some people, but usually not. I mean, not for like the people that are staff writers for the most part, you know, like. Of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, if you like work for late night or something, something that just keeps going and going, then yeah, you're, you know, you're making the money and like you're, you're good. But also like the main thing about like the residuals, like your work is alive and well on like streaming services and it's making money, but you're making nothing out of it, which is such an insane concept. To me, it's been really, you know, first of all, there's absolutely nothing good about the fact that the studios are behaving this way. And Mm -hmm. I do not want my following statement to sound like it is in any way uh, trying to find a silver lining because there is no silver lining to the way that the studios are behaving here and they're causing immense suffering to people. But, you know, I do want to say that I am very inspired by the solidarity. And I just feel like, you know, the the tone has... uh, decidedly shifted in the entertainment industry Mm -hmm. like i remember like 2020 primary you know it felt like it was a lot of uh a lot of elizabeth warren supporting you know a lot of like kind of anti-bernie sentiment maybe going around and uh you know it's like I feel like people are out here like quoting lenin and shit you know like it's i know i think that there is i think you know, I really do think that people, even middle class people are are starting to become very radicalized, um, you know, against like I'm, I I think people have, you know, like like Josh, um, you know, he has this uh, quote in his article that that I really um you know, that I really definitely loved. Basically, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but, you know, basically like these studios um, are looking for people to be uh, feudal serfs, right? And I think that, you know, more people are kind of waking up to the truth that like, I mean, like even if you make an, oh, oh, sorry, this was, uh, this article started playing (laughs) sound for a second, but basically even if you make (laughs) last living, you know, that, like these billionaires are are definitely trying to destroy basically all options for making a middle-class living, not just in the arts, but in, in every other industry, you know? It's very interesting, you know, that billionaires are turning people into the thing that they hate the most, which is people who believe in socialism. Yeah. Even, even though they don't mean it, but every, like every day people are like more and more into like, yeah, okay, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Fuck this shit. Yeah. Because it's yeah. And I mean, I think that there's um in the 1930s um and you know even even after that, 
you know, like the the dominant model of economic uh, thinking yeah. was, was like Keynesian economics, basically, that you had to have a lot of government spending. Uh, I'm not going to pretend yeah. to be an economist here, but, you know, it was markedly different from the neoliberal economics that dominates now in both parties, you know, and like part yes. of the reason for that, like part of the reason um, that there was so much government spending is because, you know, there was... Um, a threat from the left, you know, like after the Great Depression, you know, people yeah. were not too big in, into like thinking that capitalism necessarily worked. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, there was there had been the Bolshevik re- revolution. And like part of the reason that they part of the reason that rich people and politicians decided that they wanted to uh, spend some money to alleviate the massive human suffering is because they understood that you know, if you don't do that, the workers will rise up and that people will yeah. opt, you know, try to opt out of capitalism altogether. And we seem to be living in this time where, uh, you know, they just think that they can push people however far without, you know, it really any meaningful pushback, you know, and yeah. I'm not sure that that's true. You know, I mean, all the labor actions that we're seeing this summer, I think people have had it up to fucking here, you know. I know I, it's yeah like I mean we already knew that but it's just like it's yeah it's like it's like even like if I I highly like urge people like to look into like these like contracts and stuff people like been posting them like the uh like the proposals from like the uh unions and then the counter like offers or like the stuff that are being rejected are so insane like the thing, yeah, the thing that they just like write reject in doesn't even make sense. Like it's stuff like background actors should not have to maybe uh, pay for this, this and that, like hair and makeup, but like if and they, they do shouldn't their own... have to have their image used in perpetuity for AI, you know, like that is such an insane thing. Yeah, the fucking uh... like. Yeah, you want to use my image in everything you want, but like you don't want to pay me for my Im- like. What does how like why would I say yes to that? Yes. Um. So, uh, you know, it's not just the entertainment industry. Um, there's uh some news that came out uh yesterday, mm-hmm. um, about uh DoorDash. Um, DoorDash. Um, this is from The Verge. Bloomberg reports a regional director for the National Labor Relations Board filed a complaint alleging that DoorDash allegedly fired an office employee who tried to organize a union in Arizona. The complaint also says DoorDash threatened to reprimand workers who attempted to assemble and lied to them, saying it's unlawful to discuss worker conditions on days off. The NLRB specifically accuses DoorDash of violating employees' federal rights by interfering with, restraining, and coercing employees, the May 30th filing reads. DoorDash denies making any attempts to block unionization efforts. These allegations are part of a personally motivated attack and entirely without merit, the DoorDash representative Liz Jarvis Sheen wrote in a statement to Bloomberg. And I looked up this lady, Liz Jarvis Sheen, and mm-hmm. man, okay, here's what she says on Twitter. Uh, first of all, uh, one thing to understand about this woman is that she is an Obama administration alum uh, and a feminist. <laughs> That's what it says in her Twitter bio. Uh, She says, today there was an article published about a number of false claims made entirely by one former employee 
I'm going to read it in my sarcastic voice. The allegations in this agency <laughs> report are entirely untrue. We will continue working with the National Labor Relations Board to make sure the truth is heard. Here are the facts. One, DoorDash respects employees' rights under the NLRB Relations Act. Mm. The former employee was terminated for multiple instances of documented misconduct. This termination, termination was not related to any employee efforts to organize. DoorDash was not aware of any. And I mean, it's just like, Okay, these people, in my opinion, could not be more full of shit. Um, I don't know. Do you remember Prop 22 in California? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Vino Duball, who's a great follow on Twitter, um, you know, she has been like, she has been really, uh, she's a professor at UCLA and really like, you know, spearheading the research on um, the, the terrible impact of Prop 22, uh, both before and after. But basically, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmates spent uh, $203 million um, to pass Proposition 22. And this was a proposition mm-hmm. that um, made it so that uh, workers for those companies could not be classified as employees. Um, not only would they not get benefits, they would not get labor rights like minimum wage. Um, they would not get the right to collective bargain. I mean, it was one of the most uh, anti-labor measures that, I mean, it was just, it's just jaw dropping. I think that um, I saw that now um, in the wake of Prop 22, uh, the average pay for these companies is like five or at least for like the the ride share one it was like 586 an hour or something so you know basically yeah. way less than minimum wage um and you know i mean it's just doordash has been like a an extraordinarily anti-labor company i mean they all yeah. are but doordash has is you know really pioneering uh this this effort to get rid of like just all remaining labor protections in the United States and um yeah it's just it's amazing just uh, how completely um full of shit these people are and by I full know, of shit i mean I these like silicon valley uh executives um yeah they're just absolutely horrible um and uh yeah, UP, UPS may also go on strike pretty soon, the Teamsters. And what oh, they're yeah. striking over, you know, what they're striking over uh, is like just some stuff like to have air conditioning in the delivery trucks. And also... See, that's, uh, that's what drives me nuts. Yeah, you always look at the requests from all of these like people striking and they're just like basic stuff. Yeah. To the point where you're like, oh, they didn't have that before? Jesus. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, there's um, you know, there's also like a two-tiered wage system at UPS for drivers that basically like the actual like the full-time drivers I think are paid okay, but then the people the drivers that are classed as temporary are making like 16 bucks an hour or something. And so they want in the contract like a, you know, wage system that is fair to to all the workers and Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So, you know, if they don't, if, if a, a, nego- a deal can't be reached um, by the time their contract expires on July 31st, they're going to walk off the job. Um, it's going to be one of the largest labor actions in U.S. history. Um, and it yeah, uh, could oh my cost God. the economy a uh, potential of $7 billion. Um UPS pilots are saying that they won't fly if the company's package drivers uh, wow. strike. Yeah, you know. So I mean, 
uh, like Bernie Sanders and then a bunch of other Democratic senators signed a letter today. Uh, I think up to like two, 200 people said that that um, Congress and the White House should not intervene um, if there uh, is a strike, if a bargaining agreement can't be reached. Um, but Oh, that's good. Yeah, because they did that with the trains. Yeah, but I think we'll see. I don't think that I, do, I don't think that that's quite nearly enough. Like there were Democratic senators that did not sign it and there were. Of you know, obviously the Republicans will be willing to break it. So I don't I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I do think that, it, man, I, it, I, I'm not sure that there's any guarantee at this point that um, I know Congress and the White House will not uh, intervene like they did with the trains. But but I'm not I'm not sure. I, I, I am not sure. Um, yeah. Crazy uh-huh. how they will do everything to stop a strike and, and not give people what they're asking for. Well, yeah. Which is a straightforward uh, answer. Yeah. I mean, it's like I think that it's pretty. Um, you, the, the rhetoric around this is also, you know, so. Um, you know, it's so anti-labor. It's always like, oh, you know, these people are going to, you know, these people are going to prevent a small child from, you know, (laughs) getting supplies they desperately need. And just like so much emphasis on like, you know, the workers, like, you know, hurting American people in some way, like with zero blame towards the bosses, like, okay, well, how about you just give people fucking air conditioning in their trucks because they're human beings um and yeah i uh it's just all pretty disgusting and to be fair when i say that um you know it was going to cost the economy seven billion dollars i meant that as a positive like i think it's great that labor is able to flex um in this way at this point you know this is i mean really for me this is like the only kind of hope that i have at this point you know (laughs) I know. I I, know. I feel like this is so far. This is the closest thing that we've got into like a a workers like revolution in a long time, like yeah. all these strikes and stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, either people are gonna get what they want, or this is just gonna people more and more people gonna keep striking. And honestly, like it would be it would be great if everyone just stops working. Like yeah. one day, like literally three days of that, and the economy can just like collapses immediately. All of it. Yeah, it's. Oh man, I'm just looking through, and I see this. Um, you know, I see it in Newsweek right now. Here's this headline in Newsweek, and it's from Sean mm-hmm. O'Brien, the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. If your packages get delayed, don't blame exploited workers. And um yeah i'll just read like the first paragraph you know your ups driver maybe not by name but you know them because you rely on them you see their neighborhood you see them in your neighborhood every day with their distinct brown package car friendly face and on-time service your ups driver plus hundreds of thousands of ups workers represented by the teamsters need your support understanding and compassion because they're in a fight for their lives and you know i do think that like look you know the Legacy media is is always going to be uh, on the side of capital always, but I, you know I do think that they're, I do think that public opinion um, is pretty pro union at this point, and that also um, you know we're seeing at least a little bit of pro union media coverage. 
happening. Yeah, which is which is good. Hopefully more 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 of that and like less of what you were just talking about, about like how that young kid who's waiting for something in the mail. And I'm just like, I that fucking kid can't wait. I don't care. Yeah. Well, it's a very exciting time. Um and uh you know solidarity with um all of these unions and um i'm i'm very excited about our interview today uh as i mentioned yes. um it's emil torres he's super good um and yeah it's uh, this is kind of about the completely opposite side of it the like <laughs> the, the moral philosophy of billionaires if there is such a thing um yeah so uh, yeah, please, please enjoy this and we will see you next week. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. This is Kate and I am so excited about our guest this week. Um, I know it's been a minute since we've recorded because I've been on tour, um, but we're back and um, I'm just very excited about this guest because I've been following his work on Twitter for quite some time. And he's been talking a lot about long-termism, which is, I think, one of the most uh, wild things that the the tech bros have ever latched onto. And that's, that's saying quite a lot. Um, so yeah, he is uh, a uh, PhD. He just got a PhD in philosophy, um, is based in Germany. Thank you for coming on, Emil Torres. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, okay, you've been researching long-termism for a long time. And before we kind of get into any depth here, can you just tell our listeners what the hell long-termism is? Because when I first heard it, I was like, long-termism, oh, that probably has something to do with like thinking about climate change. That sounds good, right? And it's not that at all. Yeah, well, just to be clear, first of all, it's not just that I've been studying long-termism. He said, I was a long-termist for, <gasps> oh for, for many years. Yeah. So, so I was very much in this community. Uh, I was more or less sold on the techno-utopian kind of vision, very utilitarian in nature. Um, and yeah, it was only really, you know, three, four years ago that it dawned on me that this ideology is not only misguided in many sort of fundamental philosophical ways, at least that's my opinion, but also could be really quite dangerous. So like basically long-termism emerged out of the effective altruist community. And effective altruism is all about doing the most good you could possibly do in the world. And okay. that doesn't that sounds okay if you just say like that. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So it, just like you were saying about long-termism, long-termism, it, it sounds like it's, I mean, it sounds very appealing. It's, it has, it sort of um, conjures up thoughts of long-term thinking, which is something we very much need in the world today, right? We're, we're, our society is very short-termist, very myopic, and that's sort of baked into our institutions, you know, like four or six year election cycles, quarterly reports and so on. It's all very short, short term in its thinking. Climate change will affect Earth for 10,000 years. So you really need to be able to think in the long term yeah. uh, in order to tackle climate change. But that's not what long termism is. It goes way beyond that. And, and so also to tie this back into effective altruism, that has an initial appeal. When you start digging into the details, though, it ends up being very counterintuitive 
And for many people, including myself, at least at this point, very off-putting. And so, you know, the, the basically the effective altruists want to do the most good possible. And then at some point about 10, 12 years ago, effective altruists discovered some of the writings of Nick Bostrom and others. Nick Bostrom is a, a philosopher at Oxford who's fairly influential and his publications have had some kind of impact on the thinking of extremely powerful people like Elon Musk. And so Nick Bostrom pointed out that according to uh, contemporary physicists and cos cosmologists, uh, the universe could remain habitable for an extremely long period of time. Furthermore, the universe itself is really huge. So if we escape Earth, we could survive for maybe something like 10 to the 100 years in the future. That's a one followed by 100 zeros. So it's a really long period of time, much longer than the universe has existed so far, which is 13.8 billion years. And furthermore, if we, if we spread throughout the accessible universe, the future human population could be enormous. And the reason this matters is the effective altruists, uh, if you're an effective altruist and what you want is to positively impact the greatest number of people possible, and if it turns out that most people who could exist will exist in the far future, then what you should be doing is not focusing on, or at least not focusing so much on helping the mere 8 billion who exist right now. Really, you should pivot towards the future, try to figure out ways that you can positively impact the lives of this enormous number of people in the far future. So that's the heart of long-termism. What, what struck me when I first learned about effective altruism and also long-termism is it gives a moral justification to acquiring immense wealth, even if the way you acquire it is unethical. Like with the kind of like, I think I first heard about effective altruism on like Sam Harris's podcast or something to which I'm not a regular listener, but I'll dip in every once in a while to see what the hell is going on with those guys, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's like this idea that if you, um, you know, let's say you work for you know, Raytheon or something. And, you know, you make money in a way that uh, is going to be considered unethical by many or, or even maybe something slightly less bad. Let's say you're, you know, like um, a, a high level like finance person or whatever, like as long as you're donating a certain percentage of that income, you can be um, you know, a good person still be and that long-termism kind of, it just takes that idea, uh, and puts it on steroids. Like Elon Musk is, you know, like he, as long as he's doing something that could conceivably be, you know, beneficial to humanity, you know, billions of years in the future, like his space exploration or whatever, then, okay, who cares what he's doing now? Because, you know, this is, there's a way of thinking about this where he's still moral. So it's no, not surprising to me that rich people love this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It has a natural appeal to wealthy individuals in power because it tells them not only are you morally excused uh, from not focusing on things like global poverty, but you're a morally better person by taking it the, your money and donating it towards long-termist causes. So this would be like reducing so-called existential risks, ensuring that the creation of artificial general intelligence results in a utopian world world 
rather than uh, the AGI, artificial general intelligence, just annihilating humanity. So you are a, a morally superior person for focusing on these long-termist causes. And you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there's this idea um, that was born from the uh, effective altruist community called Earn to Give. And so this is the idea that, you know, maybe the, the best way to maximize the amount of good you do in the world isn't to go work for a nonprofit, for example. Rather, it's to get a job on Wall Street or maybe go into crypto and try to make as much money as possible in order to donate that money uh, to these, these so-called charitable causes. So the, the most famous uh, success story, at least until last uh, November, I believe it was, uh, of earn to give, of this earn to give uh, approach to maximizing your goodness in the world, uh, is Sam Bankman-Fried. So, you know, he sat down, had a conversation with one of the founding, uh, one of the co-founders of Effective Altruism back in, I think it was 2013. And he was going to go work for a nonprofit. And this individual named William McCaskill, who became his sort of moral advisor, convinced him to earn to give. So instead of working for a nonprofit, Sam Bankman-Fried went to work for Jane Street Capital, where some other effective altruists had also worked, in order to, uh, as one journalist put it, get filthy rich for charity's sake. And so then at some point after a couple of years uh, at Jane Street Capital, Sam Bankman-Fried realized that actually maybe he could make more money if he goes into crypto. So that's what he did. He became a multi-billionaire. Um, but in the process, you know, he also cut some corners, which was probably justified in his own mind, in part by his utilitarian long-termist uh, ideology. So, yeah. you know, if if the ends justify the means and the ends are astronomical amounts of value, a literal techno-utopian world among the heavens, then what means are off the table exactly? If you need to bend the rules a little bit, it's for the greater good. And the greater good is is inconceivably awesome. <laughs> so that's, you know, th there is, I mean, this gestures at why I think the long-termist ideology could be dangerous. You know, because of this means ends reasoning combined with this utopian vision of the future. And yeah. really, I mean, history is just overflowing with utopian movements that ended up becoming violent yeah. because, you know, they say, okay, look, there's like a million people blocking our path. You know, they're standing, these, this million people standing between us and utopia. And so, you know, maybe um, mass killings are actually warranted yeah. to ensure the realization of this utopian world. So this is one reason I sort of strayed away from long-termism. Actually, I would say fled eventually, um, just realizing how dangerous this could be. Yeah, I I mean, there's so much I want to get into you, to with you here. I definitely want to talk to you about your journey with leaving this behind. But, you know, I think just first, I, I just want to kind of dive into a little bit like you know how like how people are thinking about these ideas in real life like from what i understand like this shit gets pretty wacky like the idea is you know that the number one priority for humanity at least for some people should be you know getting ourselves to space 
um, uploading our consciousness to like digit, you know, digital, basically digital consciousness to win a robot battle with robots like 10 billion years in the future and that this is what we should be thinking about instead of housing healthcare climate change is this uh, wh- how much of this robot battle shit are we really looking at here <laughs> yeah yeah great point i mean i pointed out in some of my articles that this focus on the this this possible grand future that we could create if we colonize space and ultimately like you said we become these digital beings um and literally part of the the vision that uh leading long-termists have discussed is since you want the largest population possible in the future because the more happy people who exist uh in the universe the better the universe will become that's the that that's a component of this utilitarian ethical theory that's been really influential among long-termists. So ultimately, you want to become digital because you can cram more digital people into uh, some you know whatever unit of space uh, per unit of space than you can biological humans. So ultimately, the vision is to go out into space, uh, in, you know, colonize the accessible universe, um, literally to build planet-sized computers that would run these virtual reality worlds in which trillions and trillions of digital people would exist. And so that way you maximize the future human population. And in doing that, you maximize value. And maximization is at the heart of the long-termist ideology. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, this is just, this is wild stuff that sounds made up, but it's not. People really think this. And, you know, it's not really super surprising to me because, you know, I have I lived in the Bay Area for a long time and have been, you know, definitely spending the past year of my life, you know, digging into, you know, what some of these like Silicon Valley VC guys are up to in particular um, with, you know, housing, um, you know, kind of funding the Yimby movement, which I think, you know, Yimby movement is definitely not as as wild as, as anything. But I do see kind of a similar logic of, you know, like, let's sacrifice people now so that, you know, the economic model works out the best, you know, mm-hmm. however, however long from now. And like, you know, just a real sort of minimization of like the human cost of some of these decisions, like with the housing stuff, the decision to, you know, may remake a neighborhood so that it's you know for rich people instead of the people who live there now you know like but i guess you know i'm wondering like in what way do you see long-termism um tying in with you know just kind of the other the other ideas coming out of silicon valley like this type of i i really want to say like hubris you know that like we know what's best for the world and it doesn't really matter what happens because we, you know, we've, we've got it figured out guys. Like we have a model that, that explains this, that is uh, coincidentally very beneficial to us, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of long-termists, um, and I would say this about myself five years ago, really did uh, many long-termists don't have a good sense of just how, as I would now say, deeply impoverished, their kind of utopian vision of the future is. I mean, it's very Western. It's very influenced by the fact that 
overwhelmingly long-termists are white men. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that at the heart of the long-termist ideology is this notion of maximization. Uh, more of a good thing is better. So if you've got like, you know, one unit of happiness, if that even makes sense in the first place, <laughs> two yeah. units is twice as good. You know, 100 units is 100 times as good. Uh, and ultimately, the goal is just to, to maximize value in this kind of impersonal sense. And so I also had mentioned earlier that this is um, a key aspect of utilitarian ethics. And historically, utilitarianism emerged around the same time that capitalism did. And I don't think that's a coincidence because there yeah. are lots of similarities. You know, with capitalism, obviously, you want to, to maximize profit. With utilitarianism, you want to maximize value, whatever it is we take value to be. A, a common uh, theory about what is ultimately valuable is hedonism. So we, and that states that value is happiness. So we just want to maximize happiness. The more happiness that exists in the universe, the better. So it's very capitalistic in its flavor. And also another um, common theme within the long-termist literature is this notion that nature is something to subjugate. You know, so, so Nick Bostrom, for example, literally defines uh, in a in a 2013 paper defines existential risk as any event that would prevent us from reaching a state of technological maturity and technolo technological maturity is defined as a condition in which we have more or less fully subjugated nature and maximized economic productivity to the physical limits and the reason that's so important is once we reach technological maturity and we've subjugated nature and maximized economic productivity, we'll be ideally positioned to maximize value and to, to bring about this techno-utopian world in which we're you know, these digital post-humans uh, living among the heavens. We're all immortal and we've become super intelligent and so on. So ultimately, the reason I mention this is this idea of technological maturity is just very Western. It's about you know economic productivity and just subjugating, controlling, subduing nature. And you know, I mean, that's an idea that that is at the heart of the Western scientific tradition. It goes back to Francis Bacon. You know, yeah. once we've we've learned uh, how nature works, the laws, you know, the the rules according to which nature uh, operates under, then we'll be. Um, in a in a situation in which we can subjugate nature. Yeah. So it's just very Western. It's very white male, Western, capitalistic, and Baconian. If you were going to like, you know, you're in kind of an interesting situation because you were very in with these in with these people, but you also live in Germany. You're very far from Silicon Valley. You know, you're not in tech at all. Um, you know, kind of looking at this somewhat from the perspective of both an insider, a former insider and an outsider, like, and a philosopher, how would you characterize or describe like the philosophy or ethics at the heart of a lot of these moral ideas, quote, quote around moral, but like coming out of Silicon Valley, like not just long-termism, but effective altruism, um, you know, or, or even just like somebody like Elon Musk or, or Peter Thiel's like vision for the world, because I, I do see a commonality in it, but it's, it's difficult for me to even describe what 
the politics are. I mean, sometimes it gets into straight up fascism, but not not all the time. It's it's something kind of slightly different. And I don't really know what to call it. Yeah, I would say that um, the ethical views accepted by these people uh, are deeply problematic. In fact, one of the reasons that I came to the conclusion that long-termism is flawed is I started writing a book on the ethical foundations, the philosophical underpinnings of the long-termist ideology. And this book ultimately became part two of the book that I have forthcoming uh, in just a few days. And so the more I dug into um, the the ethical aspects of long-termism, the the less convincing I found them to be, uh, and the more problematic they were. I mean, a lot of it comes back to this notion of maximization. You know, it's it's there's no discussion. Actually, if you look at the long-termist literature, there's almost zero uh, serious discussion about questions pertaining to things like the meaning of life. You know, it's it's ultimately everything comes down to just more is better. And yeah. there's literally uh, a section in the book that was published by William McCaskill, the moral advisor of Sam Bankman-Fried. This was a book that came out last summer and was kind of the Bible of long-termism, you know, supposed to be the authoritative text. And he actually has a section titled Bigger is Better, where he's arguing that, you know, we, we just, the, the ultimate aim should be to increase human civilization as much as possible. And so he literally writes that the, an implication of this is that there is a moral case for space settlement. So you can start to see why billionaires uh, who are eager to, you know, to spread beyond Earth, uh, maybe to escape the catastrophic consequences of their own actions, <laughs> um, could is you know find this uh, worldview very appealing. Um, and the, I mean, the other thing to say is, which also ties into a point that you brought up earlier which is that despite the fact that this is supposed to be an ethical position, um, you know, it does justify actions that a lot of us, I think, would find really repugnant. Yeah. So, you know, the minimization and trivialization of problems that are not deemed to be existential, I think, would be an example of this. Uh, and literally, you know, Nick Bostrom has argued that the worst catastrophes of the 20th century. So the two world wars, of course, the second world war includes the Holocaust, uh, you know, this, this horrendous genocide and, uh, and uh, you know, all the, the eugenics policies of the, the Nazis. So World War I, World War II, the AIDS pandemic, um, the Chernobyl accident, the 1918 Spanish flu, you know, just really awful things that happened in the 20th century that in the grand scheme of things, as bad as these events were to the people directly affected, they're ultimately just mere ripples on the surface of the great sea of life. And I'm quoting him there. Because from this grand cosmic perspective, they haven't significantly affected how much happiness or suffering will have existed. And they aren't going to, in any real significant way, influence the long-term trajectory of human civilization. So ultimately, when you have this grand cosmic perspective, catastrophes like these that are non-existential, however awful they may be, they just fade into imperceptible blips. 
You know, so that is just a great example of how the long-termist view can trivialize so-called non-existential disasters. I mean, elsewhere he writes that, you know, a global pandemic that uh, causes extraordinary amounts of human suffering, but doesn't threaten human extinction. This might be a uh, great uh, massacre for man, a small misstep for mankind. So I, that just really encapsulates, I think, one of the major problems with this view is it just you know pushes everything else into the background. And all that really matters are these existential risks. Because yeah. after all, the, we're, we're talking about utopia among the heavens full of astronomical amounts of value. Everything else, by comparison, is just going to look very small. I know this is an impossible question to answer in some ways, but like what percentage of these, you know, Silicon Valley rich guys do you think have bought into some form of this? Do you think it's widespread or do you think it's still pretty limited to a few dudes? My sense is that it's pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there aren't any surveys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's not there, there's no hard data. But I mean, I would add that people like Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, so, you know, he's an author who's you know written a bunch of pretty amazing books. He has extraordinary access to tech billionaires. Um, and in his most recent book, which is called The Survival of the Richest, he recounts a number of many interactions he's had with tech billionaires uh, in which they have expressed explicitly that they believe the future is digital and that ultimately they're going to be able to upload their minds to the cloud, become uh, digitally immortal at that point, and that the you know long-term future of humanity is not here on Earth. You know, the Earth is just the cradle of humanity. And once we mature and get past this sort of reckless adolescent stage that we're in right now, we're destroying uh, the planet, uh, then we're going to spread beyond Earth and you know colonize other galaxies and, and so on. So he refers to this as the mindset with a capital T and a capital M. He never uses terms that I use. So you know I've introduced this acronym, uh, Tescreole which begins with transhumanism and ends with long-termism. And it's this bundle of ideologies that is overlapping and interrelating in all sorts of ways. What I mean by the Tesco bundle of ideologies is basically what he means by the mindset. And so in his book, he's uh, reporting based on firsthand interactions with these individuals that the mindset is pervasive, uh, which the implication of that is that Tescrealism you know, this bundle of ideologies, including long-termism, that is also pervasive. I mean, this is based on firsthand interactions with tech billionaires. Um, <laughs> you know, he writes in his book that they imagine the future being digital and, you know, eventually we're going to colonize space and so on. And the mindset is basically exactly what I mean by the Tescrial bundle of ideologies. So the implication is that this Tescrial bundle, beginning with transhumanism and ending with long-termism itself is very ubiquitous within Silicon Valley. And okay. So you, you were really into this stuff. What you talked a little bit about, you know, your as you were writing your book, you started to have some suspicions. But what was your what was your actual like process of leaving this stuff behind? 
Yeah. So I, on the one hand, it was thinking a bit more carefully about the ethical aspects. And again, yeah, I just found it to be, I increasingly found the arguments underlying long-termism to be unsatisfactory. Uh, on the other hand, I started to read about the history of utopian movements, in particular utopian movements that became violent. And I realized that at the core of a lot of these uh, movements were two components. One is a utopian vision of the future, and the other is a broadly utilitarian mode of moral reasoning. So that's just, you know, ends justify the means sort of thinking. And when you put those two together, you get a, um, something that could justify in the minds of true believers all sorts of extreme actions, including uh, violence, including in some cases genocide. So, you know, see, realizing that those two components are at the core of long-termism spooked me. And it got me really anxious that long-termism itself could be used to justify extreme actions. And just to give you a quick example, uh, when I was writing about this initially in 2021, the worry was hypothetical. If you fast forward to 2023, that's not the case anymore. So for example, you have an individual named Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is very much at the heart of this Tescreal community, uh, very much a long-termist, a transhumanist, um, somebody who has been influential in the development of these ideologies. And he argued in a Time Magazine, uh, Time Magazine article that we should be willing to risk thermonuclear war in order to prevent artificial general intelligence apocalypse. And his reasoning was that thermonuclear war is going to kill lots and lots of people, but it's not going to be an existential catastrophe. There will be several billion survivors. Uh, and in fact, the best science backs this up. Uh, if there's a thermonuclear conflict, a billion people will survive. So that's plenty enough to um, carry on civilization and ultimately realize astronomical amounts of value in the future. And so that's why he thinks that we should risk thermonuclear war in order to avoid the AGI apocalypse. And literally somebody on Twitter asked him, the question, how many people should be allowed to die to prevent AGI from being created in the near future? And his answer was virtually everybody. So long as there are just enough people to continue to keep uh, the human species going. So I want to back up to something that you said earlier, which is that you were pretty involved in long-termism and have since left long-termism. Um, I'm curious, you know, what it has been like for you to extricate yourself from that movement, or I don't know if you want to call it like a cult or <laughs> like whatever, but however you would refer to it, what has it been like for you to go? Yeah, good good question. Um, I mean, I would describe it as a cult. I wouldn't have even just a year ago, I would have been very hesitant to have used that term. Um, but I think, you know, the the backlash, the response to a lot of the stuff I've written uh, over the past year has reinforced this notion that it is very cultish. They have their charismatic leaders. They uh, are very intolerant of criticism. Well, they like the criticisms that they like. But the criticisms that target the framework itself, they really don't like. And so those critics end up being ostracized. Um, just one last thing to, to note, uh, in terms of it being cultish, you know, they even tested a ranking system 
of members, which was kept secret. And uh, one component of this ranking system uh, uh, was that if individuals are deemed to have an IQ of less than 120, they would get points removed. This is called the PELTIV, it's an acronym, PELTIV ranking system. So anyways, yes, it's very cultish. And you know, my journey away from the movement was, um, was marked by a pretty immediate um, hostile reaction and and uh, there were many people who I was friends with, who I considered to be, you know, colleagues who quickly severed all connections with me. Wow, um, that, so is, it, that is pretty culty, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different from some people's stories of leaving uh, the Mormon Church, for ex- example. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was you know pretty, I think pretty strange and. Also involves going to space. I think they also go to other planets in this West. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's also part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know, particularly the last uh, 12 months since I've become much more vocal about uh, the potential problems and dangers of these ideologies, which was a response to them trying to evangelize for their worldview uh, in a, a much more public way than before. Um, you know, I've ended up with being with instances of online harassment uh, that have, you know, resulted in friends and colleagues of mine reporting certain accounts like on Twitter uh, for harassment that was much more effective before Elon Musk took over. But also, I mean, I've even gotten threats of physical harm. Uh, there have been several examples of this. So yeah, it's been an interesting experience so far. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I can only imagine it seems pretty, um, you know, it, 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 this seems like a movement, like as with like a lot of Silicon Valley adjacent movements that uh, attracts people that maybe like to spend a little too much time on the internet, you know, maybe like, you know, maybe not the most, um, you know, socially, connected or I I'm trying to, I, I guess just like, I'm imagining that this is like, you know, kind of a, a hostile nerdy group, but I, I could be wrong, but it seems like that's what it would be to me. Yeah. I think there's, there's something to that. I mean, it, it's definitely, it definitely attracts a particular type of person, very quantitative in their thinking. Um, and yeah, an ability to, um, uh, to 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 be, uh, to to find appealing this notion that morality is just mathematics. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a super interesting conversation, and I am sure our listeners will want to check out more of your work. Where can they find you? Yeah. So I have a website uh, that's you know recent articles are posted. Um, I update that website quite frequently, and that is X Riskology. So uh, risk and then ology, as in the study of risk. So xriskology.com. And X Riskology is also my Twitter handle. Um, I'm I'm still on that app for some reason. (laughs) And you have a book out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a book out that uh, just came out uh, a few days ago. And it's called Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. And it's a very cheery topic. It's great for bedtime reading. 
uh, and you know, chatting. Once you read it, it's good for you know going to a party and and telling people about the history of thinking about human extinction, all the different ways we could perish. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read that on my beach read this summer. That'll be a <laughs> a nice relaxing book to carry with me by the ocean. Um, I, th- this has really been such a fun conversation, even though the topic is a little, uh, a little dystopian, but it's been so nice to meet you and, uh, good luck and congratulations on, uh, leaving the weird space cults, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. This is wonderful. It's really nice to meet you and, and a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Mohanad al Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's and I am at Mohanad al And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land, your this land. land.